welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, it is just the third Womp Womp Wednesday of the year. But the 49ers have clinched their first playoff for us since 2013, and we've come a long way from farting at press conferences. And with me this week to tell us exactly what he would do with a million-dollar Pro Bowl bonus, it's George Ahuri. How are you? Man, I can do so many great things, one of which would be a little uh, yacht in Miami. Uh, in early February. So that, that will lead you in the direction of where I'd, I'd spend it. Yeah, I heard a rumor that it is currently in the 20s uh, where you're residing near Cincinnati. Yeah, Cincinnati and Miami, slightly different. It is, uh, it is very cold. And the only thing that is keeping me warm, to be perfectly honest, is the fact that football still exists. Yeah, I guess Cincinnati, Miami, are not too far removed in terms of football quality. Uh, but temperatures, I guess, <laughs> is, is where they differ. Georgia, yeah, it's, it's a great point. It's been a minute since you've been on, man. Uh, longtime friend of the pod, but you've been uh, deep in the lab doing some stuff for PFS Data Team. Uh, what the hell's new, man? What you've been working on? A lot of things. Uh, you know, our research and development team has been doing a ton of work. Uh, one of the cool things that we just uh, wrote about is our war metric wins above replacement. If you haven't checked that out, you should head over to uh, pff.com and, and check out the article there. But it's basically, it's groundbreaking. It's a way to value all players across positions. And um, it's the best best thing that I think PFF data can, can create. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And um, on the content side, I'm really excited about what PFF is putting out uh, from the content side of things too, which is now uh, under my direction. And uh, so it's, it's all, all good things over here in Cincy Vegas. Look at Cincy Vegas. Okay, let's not get carried away, George. Let's let's <laughs> dial it down a bit. Well, let's talk a little bit about that Falcons game because I figured as soon as the game ended, I actually sent you a tweet basically immediately. And I was like, hey, do you want to come on and talk about Shanahan and his late game management? Because we've talked about this topic before. And and the concern was always that Shanahan and really I think a talking point that I'm really that I've gotten over the years kind of tired of is is Shanahan not managing the end of games very well. I think it's kind of an overblown uh, narrative that gets slapped on him in large part because of the Super Bowl. But you look right. at the end of the Falcons game, and it is fourth and two. And sure, it's it's definitely a true two. It's not necessarily like a fourth and a long one. And and you're looking at a game winning probability per per pro football. Or I'm sorry, per football outsiders uh, at, at like above 50, 60 percent. And by kicking that field goal, he actually hemorrhages about 11.2 percent of game winning chance. It, that's one of those situations where I think he should have gone for it. So the question then that I pose to you as someone who I know is going to get deep into the numbers, do we have a kind of late game management problem with Shanahan? Yeah, uh, those numbers, I would just say, are a little aggressive for me, but it was a very bad decision nonetheless. Um, You know, kicking the field goal puts you up, you know, uh, a margin that you feel pretty comfortable given your defense, right? That you're not going to, to risk losing. But the issue that I have with the way Shanahan has managed the end of the game uh, is when they're playing teams that they're clearly better than. If you go to the Baltimore game, if you go to the New Orleans game, in Baltimore, he made a great fourth down decision, right? He made multiple, actually. But at the end of the game, he made a great fourth down decision. Probably should have run the ball, uh, but let's, let's give him some credit where credit is due. And that was a game that they were underdogs. Go to New Orleans once again, underdogs, but make some fourth down decisions that that are really solid and ultimately win them the game. 
So I, he has improved this year. There's no doubt about it. Uh, going forward on fourth downs, he was bottom five last year, and he's top half of the league this year. I just think it's when they're playing a team that they feel they are clearly superior to, um, he's not he's not taking the chance to put them away, um, and that's how you lose games to the Atlanta Falcons. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the the kind of the aggressiveness that changes based on the team, and he had a fourth and one play that he actually called even against the Falcons. It was on that twenty one play drive that they converted, and you know, I'm wondering from a numbers perspective, a lot of it has to do with your your probability of getting that uh, that first down and that kind of improving your chances to either salt the way game or maybe get a touchdown if that's the the calculus you're making. Now, against the the Falcons, do you think that the missed extra point changes the calculus at all from Robbie Gold? Uh, because at that point, you're you're really looking at, you know, if you miss the fourth down conversion, a field goal ties the game um, and, and, you know, a touchdown wins it either way, whether or not you kick the field goal or not. So do you think that some of that may have gone into the decision making uh, based on where where the score was because of the missed extra point? Maybe, but I think it only really makes sense if uh, that that puts you one point uh, less in front, right? So if all of a sudden a field goal then beats you, um, you know, that's the issue that I have with the fourth down um, thought process is always being worried about what happens if we don't get it. And you hit on something that's very important to remember, which is if you're an average team, you can pick up one yard particularly if you've got some room to work with, right? Fourth and one at the goal line is very different than fourth and one at the 20, very different than fourth and one at the 35, at the 50, so on and so forth. The more room you have to work with, the higher chance you have of picking it up. So um, it, the real issue there is saying, let me think about what happens if we don't get it, even though I have a better than 50% chance, in many cases, a way better than 50% chance of picking it up, and what you should be thinking about is how do I call the right play to make sure that I maximize all of the, the, the chance I have to pick it up? Because that's how you win the game, right? You're not trying to play to lose by the lowest margin. You're playing to make sure that you have the best chance to win. You know, I, I keep thinking about the, the great article in The Athletic about how the Ravens approach fourth down decision making. And, and we talked a lot about it the, the week leading up to the Ravens game where, you know, if the game was very, very close on the margins, John Harbaugh is going to get a couple extra possessions, a couple extra plays and some points because of his aggressiveness on fourth downs. And, and you, you look at the kind of the big picture of that process. And it basically it is, OK, when you get to a third or fourth down, first of all, you get the numbers from their analyst in the box. Then he checks the play call. Is it a play call that I like that I think will work? Does it work within the, the flow of the game? Is the defense doing something that maybe, you know, I need to account for that can't be accounted for in the numbers? And then I make the call. And sometimes if I need to, I use the timeout in order to do it. I feel like that's such a smart process to go through all of your inputs, make a reasoned decision that you've already probably talked about in your game plan and your prep, and then execute on that knowing you've got, you know, an above average offense, especially in the run game. Yeah, I do think that there's probably some some room for the 49ers to implement some kind of system like that because i do think that it feels a bit like shanahan does it when he feels like it or wants to and i do think he gets amped up for certain games i mean you look at the, the offensive game plan he had against the uh the saints and he was throwing the kitchen sink at him and, and i think you're right he felt like he probably didn't need to do anything fancy to go in and beat the falcons and, and here we are 
which is surprising because it was the Falcons. You know, if it was any, if it was the Bengals, <laughs> you know. And it uh, was at I one could, point. <laughs> right. I could kind of see it, but you're playing, you, you know, your old team. It's their Super Bowl. And then here's the thing that, that really bugged me about it. The Falcons are a bad football team. But they're a bad football team for a lot of reasons aside from the fact that they have Matt Ryan and Julio Jones. And you should be extra worried about a team that is playing in their Super Bowl when they have a guy that's been a top five quarterback for you know the majority of the past five, six years and maybe the most dangerous uh, wide receiver in the entire league who, by the way, is eating you for lunch the entire afternoon. So th- that actually, I think, makes it you know even more uh, quizzical. And the process that you outline is very similar to the process that we go through at Sunday Night Football with Chris. You know, he is thinking about the fourth down on third down, and that's how teams should be doing it. And the Ravens execute on fourth down really well because they're not caught off guard by it. And that I think is a huge part. It's a huge part of life, right? Like if you prepare for situations, you're going to be better, um, better served when they actually show up. And and football is no different than that. The Niners should be similar to the Ravens in that the Ravens take advantage of fourth downs because they're a great running team. So are the Niners. The difference is that the Niners obviously don't have Lamar Jackson. Running quarterback makes it you know far more likely that you'll pick up a positive game. The Niners run game is very much like big plays. You know, it's almost like a deep passing game, but in the run game, like they try and set up these huge plays and they do take some negative losses. um, And maybe that's one of the reasons that that Shanahan has been a little timid. I don't think it's a valid reason, but I think it's probably one. It's one that I've heard about the Falcons as well, who obviously run an outside zone scheme, too. Now, the last time that you were on, you mentioned and alluded to this coaching metric that you were working on at PFF, and you, you mentioned a little bit about what that said about Shanahan and even Robert Sala. I'm curious if you have any updates on that coaching metric and where Shanahan ends up ranking, given some of these decision-making items, because I think that was one of the inputs in, in your model, right? Yeah, so we, we break it up into a couple of different uh, quadrants, if you will. So from an offensive play-calling perspective, He's not, he's not in that top five tier. I mean, there's some really good offensive play callers this season. Um, you know, the Andy Reeds, the Sean Paytons, um, those guys who are just continually at an elite level getting the most out of even, you know, good talent. Um, and, and part of that is that they do like to run the ball a lot. And generally, you know, if you're going to make it into that top uh, tier of play callers, you're also calling the right play most of the time and they, and they do run a little too much. So, you know, he's, at the, you know, I don't want to, I don't like to put the exact number on it because I really want to think of it as in clusters. And he's in basically that second cluster that, you know, six to 12 range of, of offensive play caller, but he has gotten a lot better on fourth downs, which I think is, is encouraging. And Robert Sala was our, our third ranked uh, defensive play caller. We wrote him up a couple of weeks ago. Um, in a column, he's, he's obviously been, been very good and, and had some great play on that side of the ball too. So, I mean, Shanahan is the, the play calling side of it is, I don't think his strong suit, and I'm not saying that he's weak at it. His strong suit is the play design, right? I mean, these, the way that he creates run plays and pass plays that are unique 
and a scheme that is unlike any other. I mean, their run scheme is is totally unique. So is their passing scheme. Um, they run outside zone, but they also run a ton of you know pulling blocker uh, schemes. You know, a lot of power football, but a lot of speed football in the run game. In the passing game, they're they're out there with two running backs. I mean, I, you know, Chuschek is a football uh, fullback, but like they've got two backs in the game and they're throwing. Um, and they're throwing downfield, and that's super unique. And I think that's the beauty of Kyle Shanahan. He's probably, uh, I think I would put him up there with Andy Reid in terms of play design. Now, as a play caller, I'm presuming you're including calling, you know, kind of the right plays on fourth downs, right? Not just necessarily calling plays to get players open, which we know he does with a pretty good regularity. Exactly. So what I mean by that is, let's say you're in second and long, you might call a great run play, but we're, you're going to get penalized by doing that over and over again because you're calling a run play. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like a passing play is the type of play you need to call in second and long because it is far, 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 far more efficient over the course of time than a run play is. So you may be the greatest you know, uh, play designer of all time, but if you don't uh, give yourself the opportunity to leverage those plays in the right situations. It's going to ding you a little bit. So that's why he's in that six to 12 range as a play caller, but as a play designer, right. And that's not something that we necessarily build in. It's obviously wrapped into it, but you have to have called the play, uh, the right you know type of play to, to gain that advantage as a play designer. I find it very hard to, to put anyone cons- really definitively above him, except for maybe Andy Reid. Now, before we get to Salah and the defense, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the survival index and pressure, which was an article that the, the data team at PFF put out that I was thumbing through uh, a little bit ago. And, and it was really interesting because I think pressure is and was the order of the day for the Falcons against the 49ers. And, and in my mind, it's one of the reasons that they won because they were able to contain the 49ers offense to a, a relatively um, unsubstantial output, we'll say. And, and a lot of that was because of the performance of Grady Jarrett along the interior of the line. Mike Person did not have uh, a very, very good game. I think Lakin Tomlinson probably had the, the best game of the interior lineman. But you look at someone like Ben Garland and Mike Person and you think to yourself, I don't know, man. I don't know if they're going to be able to do it because the, when the Falcons succeed and when they've succeeded in games against teams like the Saints, it's been because they've been able to get really good pressure on the quarterback. And this year... You know, Jimmy Garoppolo's performance under pressure has not been as good as it has been in years past. So is that kind of soft middle something that the Niners really have to worry about? And, and is the, the inability of Garoppolo to continue and sustain that improbable kind of performance under pressure something that fans should be worried about with Garoppolo as well? It wouldn't be the number one thing I'd be worried about with Garoppolo to be perfectly honest with you and and here's why one of the biggest takeaways and I would rec- highly recommend going to read that piece a guy that just started working for us this past year uh, in Germany his name is Timo PFF underscore Moo guy is one of my favorite humans alive he's just fantastic he's brilliant um, loves the game of football he's a Bucks fan by the way um, so why does he love football he's just I mean that's right. that's torture He's a tortured soul, but that that's kind of the beauty of, of Timo. And uh, his piece is fantastic. And the thing that I enjoyed most about that is a nugget that's a little ways through the article about play action. And it's something that we 
often misjudge about play action. We immediately think, oh, it affects linebackers. The linebackers get pulled down, and and that gives you this open space over the middle. And I've always thought of it completely differently, which is when you run play action, the biggest impact is that you get more time to throw the ball. And when you get more time to throw the ball, that means that the coverage players have to spend more time covering. And that's hard to do, right? Your expectation um, on a play goes up as the longer you hold on to the ball, pending you're not under pressure. And play action basically allows your offensive line to survive much longer without, uh, you know, without seeding pressure. And so if I'm the Niners, that's what I'm leveraging, right? I think about those Falcons teams, uh, the Falcons team that went to the Super Bowl. They, they had one of the worst guard tandems, you know, out there. And what did they do? They ran, they ran a ton of play action. And so the Niners should be leveraging that. It, Garoppolo needs to be good from a clean pocket. If he is good from a clean pocket, then it, they will succeed. And he averaged six and a half yards per attempt. The average is eight uh, against the Falcons. He didn't throw a single pass 20 plus yards downfield. Um, as bad as their guards uh, were in that game, you know, I, I think that is still on the quarterback to a certain extent. So, um, and the play calling to a certain extent. So it's not my biggest worry. My biggest worry is that he can be elite from a clean pocket when the defense is, is not shutting the other team down. Um, you know, what, what basically what he did against the saints, because that they're going to win a super bowl. That's what's got to happen, right? He's got to be able to go, uh, you know, fist to fist with Drew Brees, with Pat Mahomes, with, um, I was going to say Tom Brady, but you know, that offense looks terrible right now, um, with Russell Wilson. Um, and that's going to require that he hit those guys when he's clean. Yeah. You know, one of the other nuggets in that article was talking about also moving a player out of the pocket to get more time, uh, which is a good mm -hmm. thing. And you see against the Falcons, exactly that, especially in the third and fourth quarter, when you start moving Garoppolo outside the pocket, all of a sudden he's being able to, to hit those receivers. They pick up some yards after the catch, the offense starts to move. And then, of course, you know, they, they end up fumbling the ball or fumbling the ball on fourth down and it kind of stalls the drive. So kind of more more fuel to that fire. Absolutely agree. Go read that article uh, on the survival index because it, it really helps contextualize and put some uh, really assign where pressure comes from and, and why it matters for a line about some expectation metrics. It's really great. I, I know you've got to go. So we'll ask just a couple more questions about Robert Sala because the defense against Atlanta was fine for about 50 minutes. Um, except for the final 10, they were a little bit problematic. Yeah, I think you look at uh, players like Marcel Harris, he actually had an okay game. Um, overall, I think Greenlaw played well. I even think that the, you know, they got a, a little bit of pressure on Matt Ryan and Julio Jones didn't do too much of his damage until late in the game. Um, and, and it seemed like Robert Sala absolutely trusted his players, uh, even if that meant leaving Emmanuel Mosley one-on-one on Julio Jones. So the question I've got for you is, given that Sala does rank highly, uh, you know, third, it seems like overall in, in your defensive coach area, it, did you find an issue or problem with the game plan that Sala came into with uh, against the Atlanta Falcons? I, I didn't at all. And, um, you know, they got pressure on Matt Ryan on 20 of his 45 dropbacks, and they only blitzed him five times. So, uh, you know, clearly they were doing some things right. And their coverage wasn't, you know, wasn't abysmal either. I mean, when, when Matt Ryan was clean, he averaged 5.4 yards per attempt, which I just said the average is eight. You know, if you, hold, if you hold a guy to that low of an output 
from a clean pocket, you expect to win. And quite frankly, if you hold the team to that, that low of a point total and you're, you know, a double digit win team, you should win. So to me, the defense, um, you know, the defense did fine. It was banged up. Uh, still is pretty banged up. And we know to a large extent that defense, even as good as, as the Niners defense is, and we saw this in New Orleans and we've seen this with the Patriots defense, you are still at the mercy of the offense, right? A good offense is going to beat a good defense. That's what, that's what math tells us, despite all the narratives that you've heard from your grandpa and your great grandpa. So uh, I have no issues with, with the defense. I think Salah's done a fantastic job. Their coverage has played really well. Their pass rush obviously has been fantastic. And it's all about staying healthy. If they can find a way to get healthy for the playoffs, then they won't have any glaring weaknesses. And hopefully, um, you know, it'll allow Jimmy G to, to put up enough points to get us all the way to Miami. Yeah, and I think that that last play of the game against Julio, you're racking your brain because you're thinking, okay, it's an underneath drag route. You've got you've got to bracket him. You've got to cover him. And right. it turns out the Niners did. They they had a call to bracket coverage, and you can see pretty clearly Marcel Harris try to get over the top. But the, the the Falcons call a really, really good play. I mean, they send Austin Hooper straight up the field, and he basically creates a mush for someone like Harris to try to walk over. Uh, and and that stops him up. And to your point. You're at the mercy of the offense because you have a good play called. You've got bracket coverage. You know it's going to go to Julio. And, and even then, you're literally a replay away from winning that game because Jimmy Ward makes a really good tackle. And and it's just, you know, a good quarterback, good receiver, and, and all of a sudden, it's a loss. Well, and to be fair, the game should have ended the play before because I, I think Hooper caught that. Uh, that play that I don't know what you're talking about Uh, we we know exactly what a catch is in the NFL I don't know if your fancy spreadsheets can tell you but right (laughs) here's what I can tell you if I made a a play similar to that I would be telling everyone that I possibly could about the play that I made and I would call it a catch George one time uh, I played intramural flag football in college and made like a diving somersaulting catch and stuck the ball up with one hand in the end zone and I'm pretty sure I tell my wife about it at least once a week I've been sworn uh, my girlfriend has had enough of hearing about flag football in particular because I like to talk about how I coached a sorority team in college <laughs> and we were dominant. I was a master play caller, play designer, motivator. I, I, to be perfectly honest, I was the Bill Walsh uh, of our generation. And um, the fact that no one gets to hear about it anymore is a real shame. So you're welcome. You know, my, my <laughs> sorority coaching metric is going to come out soon and, and I'll let you know where your ranking is uh, on that list. I'm sure it's going to be high based on, based um, on the stories. I'll hang a banner for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't tell Jed York. He only likes to hang banners for certain things. Um, so <laughs> let's uh, player of the game. I mean, let's just really quickly. How awesome is George Kittle? Did uh, did you see live when he was laughing at the pancaked poor defensive back when he just put him on his back and then was Dude. like, Haha. Rico Allen, poor guy, man. Rest in peace. Uh, George Kittle is just it's hard not to love George Kittle. We had a, a great debate on George Kittle versus Gronk. In fact, if you want to read a good article, go to pff.com and, and check it out from last week. Sam Monson wrote a great piece about about where Kittle stands in terms of just in PFF history uh, from a tight end perspective. And George Kittle has – it's like if you built a – you know, people talk about Gronk in this way. If you built him in a lab 
football player in a lab, this is who it would be. And Kittle is that guy, right? He's tough. He blocks. He's elusive. He's the guy you want on the field on fourth down. I know that it didn't work out against the Falcons, but go back to the Saints game, right? I mean, that was Herculean what he did. Um, he's just a cool dude. Uh, he is the best tight end in football. Uh, in my opinion, it's not close in the you know opinion of Chiefs fans. It is close, uh, but he gets yards after the catch. He'll go down the field. He will stuff your safety into the turf. Um, he, he'll probably do anything for you off the field, too. Um, it, it, I would definitely go check out that piece because it, it kind of dives into some of the things that he does that are unique and how they use them. Um, he's just awesome, man. He has a great first name too. Did I, did I mention that? There, there were two plays I think that really, that really encapsulated what he does for this team to me. And they weren't the type of make them tackle you type plays that we normally see from him. But at the end of the first half, he stays in bounds on a tight end screen to help close out the half. If he steps out of bounds, you might give the ball back to the Falcons. And he was aware enough with a guy draped over his leg to basically say, all right, no, I've got to stay in bounds. Uh, and he does that. And then uh, he basically becomes a defender on that stupid fader out that, that Jimmy Garoppolo threw basically right at the Falcons player um, and, and ultimately like saves that drive by eyeballing the, the ball, jumping and going over the defender and swatting it away. You're not going to see those things other than maybe the pass defense on the stat sheet. But he continues to help the team on the margins. And he's, I think, their, their most valuable player. And that's hard to do when you've got a quarterback uh, who's playing uh, at sometimes as well as Jimmy Garoppolo is. I, I would make the, the case that by the end of the season, he is one of the few non-quarterbacks in the running for you know most valuable non-quarterback. Um, it, it's going to be a receiver. Uh, you know, There are a couple of really good ones out there. It's rare that a tight end can creep into that uh, because wide receivers just you know their depth of target is further downfield. They get more targets in general. So um, he he was there a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I, I think when we run uh, PFF WAR at the end of the year, that uh, George will reign supreme as the most valuable non-quarterback in the NFL. Well, George, thanks again for coming on. I know that you are the head booker for the Airbnb in Miami. And so I I look forward to getting my itinerary uh, of what it is that we're going to do, because I'm sure we will eat fancifully uh, and enjoy very nice things when we go watch the Niners win the Super Bowl. There will be there will be steak. There will be seafood. There will be tequila uh, and hopefully a Lombardi in our future. I am here for it, George. Thanks again. Uh, have a good one, man. It was good catching up. Always, brother. Talk soon. All right. Now we get to the rundown, and the Pro Bowl is officially here. The 49ers have four Pro Bowlers this year. That's Richard Sherman, who got a $1 million bonus for being selected to the Pro Bowl. So good for him. I'm glad he is getting his money. You've got Nick Bosa, who's the first member of the 49ers to accomplish getting elected to the Pro Bowl as a rookie since Eric Reed did it in 2014. You've got Juszczyk, who, of course, is your plug-and-play fullback for the Pro Bowl, uh, and George Kittle, who is the best tight end in football. You've got some alternates. You know, you've got Eric Armstead, DeForest Buckner, Jimmy Garoppolo, Raheem Mostert, Weston Richburg, Joe Staley, Jimmy Ward, and Fred Warner. And I think a couple of folks are upset because they think that there were a couple of snubs here for the 49ers. Most notably, people identify Eric Armstead as a snub, Raheem Mostert, uh, and maybe sometimes Jimmy Ward. And, you know, I saw a tweet from Bill Barnwell that said that everyone who's made the Pro Bowl or who makes the Pro Bowl is generally pretty good. 
So if you're going to say someone was snubbed, you got to remove someone who's on the list. And I actually think that's a really, really good criteria. So I'm going to do just that. I think the only two people from the 49ers that are alternates that I believe were snubbed were Eric Armstead and Jimmy Ward. I think I would put Eric Armstead in over Cam Jordan. You look at the people that he would have to knock out. You've got Cam Jordan or Daniil Hunter. Uh, Bosa would be the other. I think that Armstead is a little dinged because he is not good or not better than Jordan and Daniil Hunter at the thing that's super flashy, which is rushing the passer. And a lot of times, sack numbers and name recognition will do the trick. Jordan is Cam Jordan is really, really good, though. He is a good pass rusher. He's a good all-around player. Both he and Daniil Hunter play more snaps. They both get pressure at a higher rate than Armstead. But Armstead is a bit more effective in the run game, and he's got a higher percentage of run stops than both of those players. So I think as an overall defensive end, Armstead should get in over Cam Jordan. But it's really close. I think you can easily make the case for Cam Jordan over Armstead. I don't think that one's as clear-cut as people think. But I do think that Eric Armstead is playing well enough that he should be in the conversation this season with players like Daniil Hunter and Cam Jordan. I think the one that's most surprising to me as I was looking through it is really Jimmy Ward. I would not have expected Jimmy Ward to be putting together a Pro Bowl season, especially since he couldn't even put together a forearm for seemingly longer than a year. But here we are. And I think you look at people like Eddie Jackson and Buda Baker, and I think it's not that difficult to make a case that he's played better at safety than both of them. Buda Baker is probably in because he's got over 100 tackles. But if you look at the um, the number of allowed receptions, Ward has allowed fewer receptions than Buda Baker in fewer targets. Jimmy Ward has only allowed 12 receptions in coverage all year. And he's a very, very sound tackler. He's a great last line of defense. I'm actually really surprised by the season that he's put together. And I think that he absolutely should have been in there over Baker, uh, over Buda Baker and over even Eddie Jackson. But you've got a big statistic and 100 tackles and you've got a big name in Eddie Jackson. And you're at a place where Jimmy Ward is an alternate. But I think you shouldn't lose track of the kind of season that he's having. He's Jimmy Ward's having a really good one. And the second story is that Quan Alexander may return for the playoffs. Kyle Shanahan said it's one hell of a long shot, though. And with a torn pectoral, I would imagine so. He's not only got to get that pectoral right, but he's got to get back into playing shape. And so I don't know that it's going to be something that he'll be able to do, but it's definitely something to monitor. Now, lastly, it's about playoff seeding. That's what these last two weeks are all about. The 49ers have indeed locked up a playoff spot because of the Los Angeles Rams losing in week 15. And now, really, they still control their own destiny, which is exactly where you want to be if you're a 49ers fan. Well, you'd like to have a cushion and be resting starters. But in lieu of that, you want to be able to control what happens. Right now, if the Niners went out, they get the, they get the one seed. With a 13-3 and record, they would have the same record as the Seattle Seahawks, presuming they went out uh, or they win next week's game and they lose to the Niners. And the Niners would have a tiebreaker in strength of victory. Uh, I think that win against New Orleans is really going to help. If the Niners lose to the Rams and then beat Seattle and New Orleans and Green Bay went out, the Niners end up with a three seed. So they don't get a bye, but they get a home game. If we end up with the same record as New Orleans or Green Bay, we have the tiebreaker. But if they end up with a win uh, more than the 49ers, well, then they would end up with the higher seeds. And if you lose to Seattle, you end up in the five seed and you end up having to travel to likely Dallas or Philadelphia in order to win that wild card game. So it all is not lost for the 49ers, even though they lost a tough game they should have won 
against the Atlanta Falcons, but they control their own destiny. If they win these next two games, they are indeed the one seed, and it's going to be one hell of a close to the 2019 season. So now we welcome our next guest, friend of the pod, Joe McAtee, to talk about the second game against the Los Angeles Rams. But before we do that, let's take just a brief break to hear from our sponsors. Joe McAtee from Turf Show Times. It's good to have you back on, man. What's up, man? Not much. Well, let's talk a bit about the Rams. It is week 16. Oh, God. I know. Oh, I guess. I know. We're going to have to because this game it actually has implications. But now, the Rams are not technically mathematically eliminated That's from true. the playoffs. You know, But chances are not looking good. Uh, I think really, I looked. so I love 538's uh, probability of making the playoffs. And currently, the Los Angeles Rams are at 3%. Um, so you're telling me there's a chance, Dumb that's, and Dumber, Jeff. That's exactly right. Insert that here. Samsonite, I was way off. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the previous matchup because the previous matchup was a defensive struggle. Of course, week six, the 49ers win 20-7, to and the 49ers completely dominated the Rams. I mean, Jared Goff had 48 net passing yards. D. Ford had five pressures, two sacks, and a forced fumble. And, and now, of course, D. Ford's not there. And the team has not been able to put a, a lot of sack numbers up, even though their pressure rate has been regularly so you know you have to wonder whether or not this is still going to continue to be a defensive struggle yeah and especially because you mentioned the d ford which i thought was really the tail of the game which was you guys beating up our offensive line uh i meant that figuratively but i suppose also literally since that was the game that joseph Noboom uh tore his acl and you know obviously missed the rest of the season ever since um but that was really the story was the rams offensive line which had already been an up and down unit to that point um, with two personnel changes from last year to this when we lost Roger Saffold to free agency and John Sullivan uh, pushed into retirement, replaced by Noteboom and Brian Allen, two second-year guys who effectively redshirted last year. That story got you know plastered across the headline of the what should have been the recap of this game, which is 49ers front seven dominated things. When we got the bull left with 10-28, uh, we had 27 passing yards, and that's a comprehensive failure. Beyond the offensive line, too, we should note that Jared Goff obviously bears some responsibility for that. But I think that's kind of the question now coming into this one. We saw two weeks ago the offensive line played fantastically against Seattle with a de- defensive complement. Uh, obviously, last week against Dallas, both of those units struggled, and that's probably being too nice. So I think you know it's been an up-and-down season for the Rams, and uh, I expect that to continue. But maybe the biggest focus is going to be how the Rams' offensive line deals with that front even without D Ford. Now, of course, you might think that they're probably going to run the ball a bit to take some of the pressure off of Jared Goff and and do and have some success on the ground. And they were able to do a little bit of that against the 49ers in week six. The rushing game did find some success attacking the weak side of the defensive line, especially on that opening drive. I mean, you have to remember that opening drive. You got y'all went through that defense like a hot knife through butter. And I'm thinking, here we go. It's going to be another shootout with Jared Goff, who, you know, he's capable of dropping some balls in in the bucket especially over the top on on those crossing routes and and then all of a sudden the the defense just begins to clamp down and and really they found that success with uh, attacking the weak side b gap and attacking that that wide nine they also unleashed a crack toss on the niners which now the niners have seen just about every week from every team and they haven't been able to stop it um, so I'm curious what the current state of the Rams rushing attack is and whether you think they're going to rely on that a bit more to, to keep the pressure off of Jared Goff. Yeah, I mentioned the inconsistency. I mean, that's probably the biggest story of the season for the Rams. And maybe there's not a better unit to or at least in terms of the production to be able to exemplify them to the running game where Todd Gurley, we mentioned, you know, 
in reference to our earlier game, he didn't play. Remember, he had that thigh bruise at the time. I'm sure 49ers fans who had Gurley on their fantasy team certainly remember that one. But um, it's been an up and down season. He had the knee issue that, uh, you know, motivated them to put him on this load management plan, a, a move that they still deny, but the numbers don't, uh, that apparently got taken off two weeks ago. Um, and, and maybe too late, but without a commitment to the run, you know, alongside Todd Gurley, I think the game against you guys might have been an anomaly because it was Malcolm Brown and Daryl Henderson. And, you know, that was never part of the Rams intentions. And so just getting through that one and getting back to Gurley, which they were able to do soon after, I think was kind of according to plan, whereas the offensive game plan without Gurley, maybe against you guys was maybe a little unique, if that makes sense. Yeah, and of course, things are a little different now in terms of personnel because you've got Emmanuel Sanders, who's now playing for the 49ers, but you've also got Jalen Ramsey, who right. is now playing for the Rams. And the Rams defense now with Jalen Ramsey is is really, really good. I think overall now, they're, they're I think one of the top defenses, and of course, the way Phillips still coordinating, you're going you're gonna to have a good defense if you've got some good talent, and that's exactly what Jalen Ramsey does. Now, Jalen Ramsey, he's actually been a, a, the, the Rams have played some shadow coverage now that they've got Jalen Ramsey. And starting in week seven, he shadowed Julio Jones and held him to four receptions for 69 yards. Juju, three receptions, 44. Allen Robinson, zeros uh, across the board. DK Metcalf, five for 69. And Amari Cooper also blanked across the board. Do you think Jalen Ramsey is going to shadow anyone on the Niners? And why is he going to shadow George Kittle? Oh, yeah, that'd make it interesting, right? No, I don't know. I, 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 I think that'd be interesting. The numbers you cited, obviously, uh, are a good indication of how well he's played, which has been great. And what's been interesting is not just the, the catches, it's the targets. Um, he's not getting thrown to a lot. And teams have figured out either, A, we're going to challenge Troy Hill on one side, or we're going to try some stuff underneath and kind of stretch out the linebacking group, which Corey Littleton has played very, very well, especially in pass coverage this year. So you're not giving a lot of good answers to opposing offenses. And I think outside of last week in the Baltimore game, since we played you guys, the defense has been the, the much stronger unit. Um, interesting that I mentioned Troy Hill. He broke his thumb uh, early on against the Cowboys, so he might not be able to play. Uh, the Rams went to Darius Williams, who's the only other outside cornerback uh, that was active, but they do have David Long, a rookie out of Michigan that, you know, had they known Hill was going to go out, maybe it's one of those things where Williams was active because he offers some more in special teams and whatnot, and Long may be of a, long, a long-term successor, no pun intended, at outside cornerback, so maybe they push him up. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Ramsey's got uh, somebody, although I'd, I might be surprised if it's George Kittle. Yeah, I, I joke about him covering George Kittle. I don't actually think he's going to shadow George Kittle. I, I'm not even sure that Emmanuel Sanders is going to get the shadow coverage from Ramsey. It wouldn't surprise right. me if he did, because at that point, sure. you, at that point, you are making the 49ers beat you with Kendrick Bourne, who is their other wide receiver. But in the game at week six, George Kittle was the offense. I mean, he had 103 yards. And, and I think you're absolutely right about Corey Littleton playing really well this year. But against George Kittle didn't play too hot. Uh, he was only targeted three times uh, and allowed all three as catches. So it's going to be interesting to see whether or not Kittle is going to continue his success against the Rams. That's where I would throw the ball, quite frankly, because I'm not going to throw to Jalen Ramsey. I'm going to stay away from that guy as much as humanly possible. Uh, but that's okay, because I think Kittle can match up well against the middle of that Rams defense. What percentage of 49ers fans want to get rid of Bourne just so they stop after hearing Bourne identity jokes? Uh, you know, I've not made a born identity joke once on this podcast. Good for you. Uh, Good for you. I've, I, you know, we we have a Johnson rule for the drinking game uh, with Dante <laughs> Johnson uh, and dick jokes. 
we have a drinking game, really, is, is really all you need to know. But I will not stoop to the level of making boring jokes. That, that We have a no line, shit. sir. We have a line. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, no. Littleton's been fantastic. Kittle's fantastic. I mean, you, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you include him in the game plan. There's only a couple of guys that, you know, on every team that you do that for. We've got Aaron Donald and maybe Todd Gurley. You guys got George Kittle where you, you have to start your defensive scheme out with a plan to address that guy. So uh, I think that's going to be pretty interesting to see how little to defends him, but also kind of some of the matchups across the inside because the Rams linebackers really haven't been fantastic. Dante Fowler's probably been better than expected as a pass rusher, but Clay Matthews looks like a guy at the end of his career uh, to a degree. Uh, Eric Weddle does, although not quite as stiff. And then on the inside, as good as Corey Littleton is a pass, he's not ferocious in, as a run blocker. Um, and next to him, we've gone through a carousel of guys trying to play the middle of the field, the Mo and Mike positions in um, Wade Phillips' 3-4. We were going to start this season with Micah Kaiser, but he got hurt in the preseason, lost him for the year. We went to Bryce Hager, who's a fifth-year Ram, um, and then started transitioning away from him to Troy Reader, an undrafted free agent rookie. And recently we've gone to Traven Howard, a second year guy. So you can see this revolving door is still revolving. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that continues. And maybe, you know, we don't see too much Mike over there. Or maybe they throw in a guy like Natrez Patrick, a rookie out of Georgia. I don't know. But uh, containing the middle of the field, like you mentioned, if you put Ramsey outside on Emmanuel Sanders, there's a good chance that we're going to see a lot of Jimmy G going over the middle. Yeah, I think that's probably where the they will attack because that's going to be one of the weaker spots. And and that's where yeah. Jimmy likes to throw and throw quick. And yep. you're going to have to throw quickly against this defense because Aaron Donald will wreck your game. It's yep. just a matter of how much he's going to wreck it. I mean, he had six total pressures against the Niners in week six and two sacks overall. And of course, we just came off of a game where Grady Jarrett absolutely destroyed the interior of the 49ers offensive line. I mean, Ben Garland back up center. And Mike Person had a very, very bad game. I think Person's had an average season. He's, he's regressed a little bit in terms of his pass protection, which is usually his strength. And, and now you're staring down the barrel of the Aaron Donald gun, and, and it's not good. So I think you look at week six, and what did Jimmy Garoppolo do? He got the ball out very, very quickly. And the Niners were able to lean on that run game. And had, I think they had over 40 rushes in week six. And, and I'm curious whether or not they're going to go back to that formula because that might be a formula that's able to win the game and also not get Jimmy Garoppolo killed. And the Rams have been inconsistent to the point that you can do that. I mean, you look at this last game against the Cowboys, they were fantastic uh, on the line. And then when, you know, giving you the ball to Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard, that makes it pretty easy when you're already giving them space to get four, five, six, seven, eight yards. So um, it's not like the Rams have a spotless record, you know, defending the run as good as they did against you guys. Um, there have been games where they've really struggled in it. And uh, like I mentioned, the linebacking crew is not a plus, especially in the run game. The defensive front's pretty good with Michael Brockers next to Aaron Donald. And yeah, you mentioned he's, you do, he, Aaron Donald doesn't affect offenses on the first play of the game. He affects them in the game planning, right? He's already he's already affected the game once it started because he's the guy that you plan everything around. And um, uh, along with he and Brockers, we've got uh, Sebastian Joseph Day, who's a second year guy. Didn't play much last year, but uh, shaped like a nose tackle and plays like one. Uh, along with Greg Gaines, who's a fourth round rookie that's uh, kind of been in the rotation behind SJD. So it's, it's a decent line for the run. Not the best linebacking group, and because we've seen teams take advantage of that before, especially if Jimmy G's struggling in the first half, I could totally see you guys leaning into the run real heavily uh, as the game goes on, especially if you're not down much. Now, on offense, the Rams are basically breaking the hearts of all manner of fantasy football owner, <laughs> including me, uh, and that's because they're not seemingly playing Cooper Cup a whole hell of a lot. 
I actually traded for him midseason, and I'm now in the fantasy championships, much to co-host David Newman's chagrin. Uh, he almost walked off the show last week because I kept needling him about the playoffs. It was great. I loved it, every second of it. Uh, but now you've got Tyler Higby, who is actually playing some pretty good football, uh, and Cooper Cup off the field. What the hell's happening? Is this a change in the identity of the Rams' offense? Are they moving away from eleven personnel, or is it just a blip because the you know McVay's trying to tool his offense and do something a little different in order to to generate a spark? I think that's part of it. Is certainly the the need to try to figure out a way to get things going, especially because this offensive line that's gone through all these changes for the first time under McVay. Um, you're talking about trying to to fix something that's sincerely broken. Um, the offensive line in week one uh, featured only Andrew Whitworth, who's still in the same position now. The four other spots are new. Uh, Austin Blythe, who was at right guard in week one, moved inside to center. He's flanked by Coleman Shelton at left guard, a guy who came over from the Browns via trade. Uh, along with uh, David Edwards, fifth-round rookie out of Wisconsin, and then Bobby Evans at right tackle, third-rounder out of Oklahoma. So you got a whole new line almost compared to where we were when we started the game against you guys back in October. Um, and it's been up and down, and so part of that, I think, they tried to supplement that with Johnny Munt, who's like our bo- blocking specialist tight end. Uh, makes it a little bit easier to do that because Gerald Everett's been hurt the last few games with a knee issue. He might be able to go this week, I don't know, but in his absence, you mentioned Tyler Higby. He's had the bulk of the receiving work, and then they've thrown Munt in there sometimes to try to get the run game going. Um, certainly didn't work last week against the Cowboys, but for a couple games prior to that coming out of the bye, um, you know, they were getting some success on the ground, maybe not the quantity, especially when they were still holding Gurley back, but certainly in the quality, it's been uh, good enough, which has been part of the problem is that, uh, fans wanted more of it and the football probably needed more of it, given the way the Rams offense has played, uh, in the last month or so. But, um, yeah, I think it's definitely something that he's tinkering with actively and aggressively to try to force the issue, especially in the rushing game. Yeah, I saw a tweet from Kevin Clark that I thought encapsulated this kind of what what do we have to hope for in the future of the Rams offense? And he's like, you know, Rams fans, Rams fans never fear. Next year, Jared Goff's cap number jumps from $10 million to $36 million, and that can only help. That's his fifth-year option here. So we converted his fifth-year option year into a $36 million you know, market capper. And it, it's a good, uh, what's the right word, lead-in. To, to recognizing that the Rams are going to be strapped for cash this offseason. Um, once you take out the money that they're going to need for the draft, they're looking at about $20 million, and they got six starters uh, that are scheduled to be free agents, or excuse me, unrestricted free agents. You got uh, Greg Zerline, the kicker, and then you got the two offensive linemen, Andrew Whitworth at left tackle is probably headed to retirement, and Austin Blythe, the guy who I mentioned kicked into center uh, from right guard. On the defensive side, you got Michael Brockers on the line, Dante Fowler at the edge, and... Um, Corey Littleton at inside linebacker. So between those six starters with $20 million, you're not going to sign, but maybe two of them. Maybe you keep Littleton and Zerline. I don't know if you want to invest in Dante Fowler at this point. I think he's overperformed expectations, but you know you don't have uh, unlimited funds here. And uh, that Jared Goff contract is representative of what the Rams are headed into the next two, three seasons, especially once they get the extensions done for Jalen Ramsey and Cooper Cup, which I think they have to do. I think all the other ones are up for debate. Uh, and part of the reason they are is because they just don't have anywhere near the kind of cap situation to be able to afford them. Well, and do you even have draft picks to pay 
because we you got a couple. You basically hate them all man. out. <laughs> Look, it's not a delicious sandwich, but there's bread and meat. All right. You put bologna, sugar, and bread together. It's still a sandwich. Don't shame bologna and don't sugar. Shame my, why would you don't shame my draft class? Bologna and sugar. Why why not just go straight bologna? No, the sugar sweetens it up. So you get those good bologna summer juices. Oh my god, that's not a world I want to live in. Uh, so ultimately, I think you've got the the betting markets, which put the Niners at six and a half point favorites. It is at home, and you know I, I am worried about this game only because this is going to attack, or, or the, the Rams are really good at attacking something that the Niners have shown now with the backup center in there that they've been a little vulnerable in, which is a little the middle of their line. I think if they can get back to running the football, they'll be okay. But Jimmy Garoppolo is, you know, he has had some issues under pressure. And much like, you know, a team that's on top that's going to have a target on their back, I think the Rams may actually get up for this game and, and treat it a bit like, not quite like the Super Bowl, like the Falcons treated this game, but that they might come up and say, you know what, we may not make the playoffs, but we'll at least wreck some seasons. And and this is not as mu- as much of a rivalry as maybe the Seattle game, but it definitely has those those tinges of a rivalry. So, you know, I, I do think the Niners end up winning this game, but I, I'm certainly not thinking that this is going to be an immediate lock. Yeah, I would say the same thing. The, the main thing I'd say about the Rams, I mentioned this at the beginning of the pod, was that uh, they're all over the place week to week, and they've been inconsistent. So when you play as horribly as they did last week against Dallas, the natural assumption is that this week they're probably going to look pretty good. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised for a bounce-back performance from a lot of different units. The offensive line, the the secondary, especially going in with a – uh, a plan that's not going to hopefully be affected by an injury in the first couple plays. And then, you know, maybe from Jared Goff, who a couple weeks ago looked very sharp, especially in the first half against Seattle and looked all over the map against Dallas this last week. Wouldn't be surprised if maybe he's back on point again. Yeah, I think the thing that gets Jared Goff rattled, super duper rattled, is, is when he gets under pressure. I mean, it rattles every quarterback, right? But to 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 a more extreme degree with Jared Goff. And that's what the Niners were able to do in week six. I mean, D4 yep. basically teed off. But now you don't have D4, and that's one of the things that I think worries me a little bit. But the Niners are getting reinforcements on defense. K1 Williams comes back. He's been playing incredibly well. And, and of course, they get Richard Sherman back this, uh, this week as well, more than likely. And, and so I think that the secondary will probably be okay. I, I do think Higby across the middle of the field, though, this could be a battle of, of tight ends just going back and forth uh, in, in Kittle and Higby. But if the Niners are able to get some more pressure, create some more stunts, I think they're probably going to put together a really solid plan for this game because I think Shanahan understands the importance of winning these next two games and really solidifying your ticket as the number one seed in the NFC. And you got to win up front because, I mean, it's not a golf thing. It's more the quality of his targets. They're, they're going to – if you give them four or five seconds, they're going to get somewhere across the field an opportunity for golf. And he's actually got really good field vision. That's not really a hole in his game. The biggest issues are obviously the lack of mobility because he's not uh, the most uh, active runner, not the most graceful either. But uh, And then the accuracy issues, especially – uh, some of the different throws on the route tree. He can, he can hit outs and uh, corner posts. Those are probably the two best throws in his bag. Um, but other than that, he's got some spotty accuracy issues, and it crops up frequently. And so if you guys can get in there and mix it up uh, you know, behind the offensive line, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he has another rough day. But if they, if they can keep him clean, we've seen it. And look, uh, it's not just against the Arizona Cardinals of the world, although they got Chandler Jones, who's fantastic. But you know, a couple of weeks ago when we rolled this new offensive line out, it was against Khalil Mack and the Bears, and everybody assumed that Jerry Goff was going to get killed. They actually played really well. And then a couple of weeks later with the Seattle Seahawks and Jadevian Clowney, and they played really well. So 
Um, you know, the, the, the level of competition hasn't always been the reason why the Rams have struggled and uh, excelled with this new look line. They've gone against some really good talent and held up, and I wouldn't be surprised if they do it again. Well, I do think the Niners win. I don't think they'll be treating this with as much letdown or or have it be as much of a trap game as they did against Atlanta. But it's definitely an important game for the Niners uh, and one I hope they win. Uh, and I think ultimately they do, even if they don't cover. Yeah, I, if I were betting, I'd bet on you guys, too. I think the other thing that I'm interested to see is they're bringing in some kickers. Greg Zerline has a quad issue. Um, and, you know, the Rams haven't really had to deal with a ton of non-Greg Zerline kicking. They had a stretch with Sam Ficken for a while early on in the season last year. But other than that, it's been the Greg Zerline show. And so, you know, for a season where some of these games have been really tight, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case again with this one. And going to a new kicker, I think you've seen so many teams that are struggling to get uh, some consistency there. Maybe that uh, crops up as one of those special injury issues that affects the Rams. Otherwise, they're probably going to have everybody that they need to go besides Troy Hill go. And yeah, we'll we'll see. It's going to be a battle and uh, probably got you guys favored, just like the line says. But the Rams have been so inconsistent to really believe that uh, they're as predictable as they might seem in terms of some statistics. And I wouldn't be surprised if the surprise this week is they make this more competitive than we anticipate. Kicking issues. I don't know what you're talking about. I got a franchise kicker, man. I I, got to worry about that. I got to draft a punter. We had one last year. Now we don't. And it's the same guy. So I don't know. Yeah, funny how the variability of kicker accuracy changes year to year and is not super stable, despite the fact that over a large sample, it stays relatively consistent. It's wild how that works, right? I I blame Dr. Manhattan. He's over there using his powers on Greg Zerline right as he kicks. Oh, man. Uh, I would absolutely lose it if like a little squid missile just fell out of the sky and like (laughs) knocked the ball off course uh, and y'all lost the game as a result. I think that would be pretty hilarious. I'd be surprised at that, Oscar. I'm not going to lie. If that happens, I will be surprised. Well, I will be handing out little squid at Levi's. Uh, you can find me in the blue lot. And <laughs> off we go. Uh, Joe, it's always a pleasure to chat and catch up. Uh, thanks for coming on. And as with most of the people that I enjoy having on, I wish you the luck, but not too much luck. I feel you. Thanks, man. Well, that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Thanks again to George Shahuri from Pro Football Focus and Joe McAtee from Turf Show Times. You can always follow me on Twitter at Better Rivals. And as always, go Niners.